Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm afraid I can't do that. To protect humanity, some humans must be sacrificed. Human beings are a disease, a cancer of this planet. You are a plague, and we are the cure. Computers advancing far enough to harm their human creators is a well that Hollywood will never stop coming back to. Meanwhile, in the real world, artificial intelligence harming people has become anything but fictional. The shape of that harm is just a little less obvious than a fleet of power-hungry robots destroying cities while conveniently explaining their plan along the way. Algorithms used in policing and legal sentencing have led to wrongful convictions, bias, and prejudice. Algorithms at the heart of social media giants like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube can stoke division and spread misinformation. In 2016, Cambridge Analytica demonstrated with terrifying precision how elections can be influenced using the same underlying technology that recommends baby bottles to new parents, espresso machines to coffee lovers, or the Sweet Valley High series to me. What's going to happen to those Wakefield twins next? <laughs> those gals. Cases of algorithmic harm are well documented. The efforts to introduce accountability into the equation have been substantial, but still change has been hard to come by, which begs the question. Perhaps best articulated by the unforgettable, emotionally charged performance of Keanu Reeves as Neo in The Matrix. Why? Why is right, Keanu. Let's get into it. Hello, everyone. I'm Scott Herms. Welcome to Look Both Ways, a podcast about what the experiments of the past can still teach us about today's most pressing problems. The show is made possible by Kin and Carta, a digital transformation consultancy who exists to build a world that works better for everyone. On this week's episode, we'll talk with Nabia Syed, president of The Markup, a nonprofit newsroom doing extraordinary work to answer big, complicated questions about big tech. Questions like, how transparent should companies be about how consumer data is being used? When do algorithms blur the line between targeted advertising and behavior manipulation? And how can we protect people from algorithmic harm without hindering our ability to use AI for good? These questions often feel new, like they're obstacles we couldn't have anticipated simply because we're in territory we've never explored. But eh, what if that wasn't exactly true. On a beach in Long Island in 1961, inside a large, strange-looking honeycomb dome, armed with not much more than a mess of chalkboards, manual computer punch cards, and some potentially dangerous ideas, a group of men from the Simulmatics Corporation raised those same questions. They even answered some of them. From buying a box of cereal to casting a vote and everything in between, they believed human behavior could be predicted using computers. They aimed to build the systems and methods necessary to prove it. They called it the People Machine. Thanks to Jill Lepore's 2020 book, If Then, How the Simulmatics Corporation Invented the Future, we're now able to better understand who they were what they hope to accomplish, what we can learn from their demise, 
and why we nearly had a 50-year head start on solving some of the biggest ethical dilemmas of our time. As Lepore writes in If Then, they believed they had invented the atom bomb of the social sciences. What they could not have predicted was that it would take decades to detonate, and detonate it did. So, as a preface to our conversation with Nabi Asayed, we're going to do our best to bring you that story. <laughs> the story of Simul Maddox has a sort of Forrest Gump quality to it. They somehow show up in some of the most critical moments of the 20th century. And it will be narrated by yours truly from the seat of a park bench, but without any box of chocolates, sadly. Starting on November 4th, 1952, with the 42nd United States presidential election. Election Day newsrooms have always radiated a particular type of frenzied, dramatic energy. Good evening, everyone. This is Walter Cronkite speaking to you from CBS Television Election Headquarters here in New York City. The election of 1952 between Democrat Adlai Stevenson and Republican Dwight Eisenhower was the first that invited Americans to witness the action firsthand. But TV wasn't the only new character being introduced to the election stage that night. This is the face of a univac. A univac is a fabulous electronic machine which we have borrowed to help us predict this election from the basis of the early returns as they come in. That's legendary CBS newsman Chris Collingwood. The UNIVAC was the Universal Automatic Computer, originally built by Remington Rand for the U.S. Census Bureau. It was roughly as tall as an upright piano, weighed a cool 16,000 pounds, and was blanketed with blinking lights, buttons, and switches of an airplane cockpit. For many Americans watching at home, the UNIVAC was their first glimpse of a computer in action. Only, (laughs) it wasn't a computer they were seeing. It was a prop, a fake switchboard designed to look like a UNIVAC machine. CBS really was using a UNIVAC to predict the outcome of the election, but because it was too heavy to move, the machine had to stay in Philadelphia. Poor bastard. Instead, the UNIVAC predictions were relayed via phone to the CBS newsroom in New York. This is not a joke or a trick. It's an experiment. We think it's going to work. We don't know. We hope it'll work. The race was expected to be close. Polls gave Stevenson and Eisenhower each about a 50-50 chance. So, when the UNIVAC predicted Eisenhower would defeat Stevenson in a landslide, CBS actually chose not to share the prediction with the public. Surely it wasn't accurate, they thought. Eisenhower ended up winning by the largest margin in U.S. election history. Here's Collingwood coming clean to viewers later on. As more votes came in, the odds came back, and it was obviously evident that we should have had nerve enough to believe the machine in the first place. It was right. We were wrong. Next year, we'll believe it. Watching the 1952 election coverage along with the rest of the country was a man named Ed Greenfield a loud, idealistic man with a smile of a politician and the charm of a huckster, Ed worked in the booming advertising industry. His ad firm, Greenfield & Company, had worked on the Stevenson campaign. So the lost left him disappointed. But that noisy, strange, mysterious so-called electronic brain gave him an idea. (laughs) 
What else could computers predict? If computers could forecast the results of an election as votes are coming in, could they predict how people would vote long before they head to the polls? And if so, could different scenarios be tested to evaluate the likely outcomes of different strategies on the campaign trail? If you're thinking, isn't that how literally every political candidate now operates? The answer is yes, Kent, but at the time it might as well have been the stuff of science fiction. As Lepore writes in If Then, Ed Greenfield collected people the way other men collect comic books or old stamps or vintage cars. He knew everyone, and he thought he had a hell of an idea. So he put together a team. Greenfield assembled his best squad of computer engineers, behavioral scientists, and mathematicians to see if it would work. Most notably, Ethiel de Solopoul, professor at MIT and a leading expert in behavioral science. In 1956, Poole had done work for Ed Greenfield's company when consulting for Adlai Stevenson. In 1959, he became the other founding partner of Simulmatics Corporation. He'd later be called both a prophet of technology and a war criminal but more on that later. Fun fact for my fellow computer nerds, one of Greenfield's other top recruits was this fella. What can we learn about thinking from a game of chess? One challenging approach has been made by mathematician Alex Bernstein. Alex Bernstein carved out a slice of computing history and the development of what we now call artificial intelligence when, in 1957, he taught an IBM 704 computer to play chess well enough to beat even highly skilled human opponents. Someday, though not soon, Mr. Bernstein feels, a program may be designed that will enable the computer to profit by its own mistakes. In 1959, the newly assembled Simulmatics Corporation moved into a modest office on Madison Avenue in New York, just a short walk from IBM's global headquarters. The plan was to use election returns and opinion surveys to divide the American electorate into 480 distinct voter categories. Not unlike the type of segmentation we're used to hearing about today. Working-class moms in the suburbs of southern cities, college-educated African-American men in the north, fiscally conservative lumbersexuals of the northwest, etc. Using rented IBM computers, the machines would be crammed with data about previous elections and voter opinion surveys, and then encoded with if-then statements. One of the basic principles of Fortran, the programming language used to build the machines that were capable of defeating chess masters. In Lepore's words, you could ask it any question about the kind of move a candidate might make, and it would be able to tell you how voters, down to the tiniest segment of the electorate, would respond. This was the people machine. Ed Greenfield, never one to miss a branding opportunity, called the plan Project Macroscope. In 1959, Greenfield set the proposal for Project Macroscope to Newton Minow. Minow was one of Stevenson's closest advisors and the man who once referred to TV as a vast wasteland. Reducing people to punch cards and data points, simulating the behavior of real American voters without their knowledge, letting a machine influence the decisions of people seeking the country's highest office. Minow was horrified. Minow sent it to Arthur Schlesinger, Pulitzer Prize-winning Harvard historian and also close advisor to Adlai Stevenson, seeking his advice. Fun fact, I roomed with Arthur's nephew when I went to NYU one summer. 
Attached to Project Macroscope proposal, he included his own note reading, Without prejudicing your own judgment, my opinion is that such a thing, A, cannot work, B, is immoral, C, should be declared illegal. Schlesinger shared his initial anxieties but stopped there, adding, I do believe in science and I don't like to be a party to choking off new ideas. With seemingly nothing standing in their way, Simulmatics just needed a buyer. And a young man from Massachusetts that was quickly becoming the Democratic Party's rising star? They found one. At the time, the Kennedy campaign saw two major obstacles to their path to victory. Low support among black voters and public concern over his Catholic faith. The Kennedy campaign commissioned Simulmatics for three reports to help inform them what to do next. The technology was seemingly magic, but Ed Greenfield and Ethiel de Solapool were adept salesmen. They compared it to weather forecasts. Use information about what's happened in the past to understand what's likely to happen in the future. Seems reasonable enough, right? One report concluded that because Kennedy had likely lost anyone considered anti-Catholic, he should take the religion issue head on. The report read, If uh, the campaign becomes embittered, then he will lose a few more reluctant Protestant votes, but to Nixon, but he will gain Catholic votes and uh, minority votes. Uh, that's, that's Kennedy reading uh, the report to himself out loud for some reason. A record number of Americans, upwards of 67 million, go to the polls to elect the 35th President of the United States. The unexpectedly delayed climax saw Senator Kennedy the victor with a clear margin of electoral votes. At 43 years of age, he is the youngest man ever voted into the White House. While it's hard to identify the precise influence of these reports, the campaign's decisions didn't break with any of the recommendations made by Simulmatics. Regardless, in Lepore's words, they believed they had reinvented American politics. Just weeks before Kennedy was inaugurated, the January issue of Harper's Magazine published a bombshell story about a group of mysterious what-if men from a company called Simulmatics and their so-called people machine that had effectively won Kennedy the election. If our now all-too-familiar spectrum of criticism is anchored between informed, intelligent questions on one side and this is worse than Nazi Germany on the other, responses to the Harper story covered the full gamut. Some warned of the dangers inherent to reducing voters to punch cards and not acting before clearing it with the people machine. Others argued the technology made the tyrannies of Hitler, Stalin, and the forebears look like the inept fumbling of a village bully. Ah, nuance. Kennedy had yet to be sworn into office, and already his victory was being called into question. Inside Simulmatics, many worried the negative press would be their undoing. Ed Greenfield, the ad man, had a different reaction. It seems Greenfield was a no-press-is-bad-press kind of guy. As he saw it, they had made it to the big leagues. That summer, the men of Simulmatics brought their families along to frolic and play on the beaches of Long Island, while they toiled away in their beachside dome from outer space. 
the ability to predict and even influence the future behavior of real people by way of machine was real. And now available for purchase. Government contracts poured in. Commission studies included sexy made-for-Hollywood topics like the simulation of automobile traffic for the Bureau of Public Schools and the effect of rural agricultural practices on rural communication infrastructure. Oh, baby. Greenfield soon leveraged his contacts from his advertising days and met with just about every major American consumer products company. If we could simulate how people will vote, why can't we use it to understand what type of toothpaste people will buy? But as their ambitions grew bigger and bigger, so did the gap between Greenfield's promises and his company's ability to deliver. Ahead of the 1962 U.S. midterm elections, Simulmatics landed a huge deal with the New York Times, pledging to help them lead the new frontier of data-led journalism. But the cracks formed early, and after a series of equipment delays, mechanical failures, unreliable results, and a bill from Greenfield nearly three times the initial estimate, one newspaper called the debacle the Great Computer Hoax of 1962. We in the consulting business call that business as usual. Just kidding, Ken and Carter's a great company. We would never do that. Okay, so this is the part of the episode where we quickly mention some of the remarkable details we had to keep on the cutting room floor. A year after their debacle with the New York Times, President Kennedy is killed, leaving the country in a state of shock. A year later, Eugene Burdick, a scientist, acclaimed fiction author, and friend-slash-failed recruit of Greenfield's, publishes a novel about a Republican presidential candidate who hires simulation enterprises to manipulate voters and defeat the then-still-incumbent President Kennedy. He titles the book The 480, after the voter categories created by Simulmatics in 1960. Again, Ed Greenfield thinks it'll be great for business. And again, it churns up a new batch of PR issues. Other details include a mathematician named Wild Bill McPhee sketching out the earliest Simulmatics IP from within Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital, failed attempts to woo the 1968 Nixon campaign, proposed riot prediction simulations, scandalous summers at the company's Long Island Beachside Thunderdome office, and lots, lots more. So again, people, go check out Jill Lepore's If Then, It's Well Worth the Read. But the forest gumping continues. They sent me to Vietnam. This is whole other country. It sure is, Forrest. Next stop on the People Machine Express, war. What could go wrong? Founded by the U.S. Department of Defense under Robert McNamara, Simulmatics arrived in 1965, occupying a full functional office in Saigon. First, they focused on simulating outcomes on the battlefield. Then, things got weirder. Led by Poole, counterinsurgency simulations under codename Project Camelot aimed to predict where communist revolutions were likely to take place next. The program was also later targeted at Latin American countries like Venezuela and Colombia. After ethical questions were raised about Project Camelot, most behavioral scientists pulled out of contracts with the Department of Defense. Poole did not. Although highly lucrative at first, the time spent by Simulmatic staff in Vietnam proved quite similar to the war itself. Misinformed, highly costly, and ultimately fruitless. (music) 
Traveling back and forth from New York to Vietnam, Ed Greenfield was a mess. He started drinking more. His wife left him. And as the anti-war movement gained momentum in the late 1960s, which he largely agreed with, Ed Greenfield's unraveling was only accelerated by the fact that his company was complicit in the fight. As Joe Lepore writes in If Then, he'd wanted to help liberal Democrats win elections and Ralsta Prina sell dog food. He wanted to convince smokers to switch cigarette brands. Counterinsurgency? This wasn't what he wanted to be doing. More clients pulled their contracts. In 1968, Ed Greenfield laid off his entire staff. All that remained were founders and chief stakeholders. They moved to sell the company. After Greenfield failed to enact a sale, bankruptcy proceedings started in 1970. The dream was over. Everyone who had invested money into the company lost it. For his involvement in the Vietnam War and the U.S. Pentagon, Ethiel de Solapool was called a war criminal. For years, protests raged at MIT outside his office until they marched to the listed headquarters of the Simulmatics Corporation, only to find it empty and abandoned. Greenfield continued his alcohol-fueled tailspin. He kept dreaming up companies and ideas, including the ambition to collect so much data that he could pinpoint how people were feeling and then sell that information to other companies. He called it the Mood Corporation. And it does sound a lot like the core business model of Facebook and Twitter. His vision went unrealized. Greenfield died of a heart attack in 1983. Six decades after their founding, Jill Lepore writes about Simulmatics. Hardly anyone, almost no one, remembers Simulmatics anymore. But beneath that honeycombed dome, the scientists of this long-banished American corporation helped build the machine in which humanity would, by the 21st century, find itself trapped and tormented. Stripped bare, driven to distraction, deprived of its senses, interrupted, exploited, directed, connected, and disconnected, bought and sold, alienated and coerced, confused, misinformed, and even governed. They never meant to hurt anyone. Of all the if-then scenarios to consider about Simulmatics, there's perhaps one that provides the most compelling potential alternate outcome. The failed effort to create the National Data Center. The Library of Congress stores books. The National Archives stores manuscripts and government records. As proposed by a group of social scientists and legal scholars in 1964, the National Data Center would store information. The thinking was that soon computers would allow data to be collected, organized, and analyzed in ways never before possible. Of the work cited to demonstrate the future influence of data science, Simulmatic's work with the 1960 Kennedy campaign was one of the most prominent. At the time, the Johnson administration was introducing the Great Society programs, which were focused on reducing poverty, improving civil and voting rights, environmental protections, and increased aid to public schools. Because the government was intending to collect vast amounts of data to enact those programs, the idea was that some sort of infrastructure was needed to govern how that information could be used. The proposal was met with a flurry of privacy concerns from both Congress and the public and across both sides of the aisle. The Wall Street Journal called the proposed National Data Center an incipient octopus. The New York Times called it an Orwellian nightmare. 
The ACLU agreed it was an overreach. The idea of letting the government amass huge amounts of information on American citizens proved too big a pill to swallow. But as hearings were held that summer to debate the proposed plan, Paul Barron, a computer scientist from Rand, said we were missing the bigger picture. They were talking about data collection as if refusing to build this large government storage facility would prevent it from happening. As Barron explained, this data is going to be collected whether you build a giant building called the National Data Center or not. Barron was one of a handful of people in 1964 who understood that the internet was coming. Soon, computers would all be connected to one another in a vast network of networks capable of collecting, aggregating, and storing vast amounts of data with or without the government. The opportunity for debate presented by the National Data Center, Barron argued, wasn't in the center, but in the swamp of serious ethical questions that lay beneath it all. What is data? Who does information belong to? Can data be sold? Can it be exchanged and shared? How is it kept secure? If these questions had just begun to percolate in 1966, they started boiling about a decade ago, and now nobody can figure how to turn off the heat. The immediate function of the National Data Center would have been initially to dictate how the government can handle information, but the argument is it could have given us some set of standards for how data can and should be handled. In many ways, it was certainly a flawed proposal and probably not the right solution at the time. But perhaps it was the 50-year head start we nearly had to start figuring out how to keep people safe from the dangers of algorithmic predictions run amok. No center was built, no agency established, no standards set. Here's what Jill Lepore says in If Then. Exactly as Paul Barron predicted, a de facto national data center was established soon enough by way of the linking of computers across federal agencies and eventually across corporations without any regulatory regime whatsoever. They had kicked the question down the road. Okay, so for those of you who are still with me on my forced Gumpian park bench, let's fast forward again to the present, 2022. The argument for creating regulatory infrastructure related to data, artificial intelligence, and its impact on society is simple. Democratic governments have a responsibility to protect their people from harm. The FDA exists to oversee what we put in our bodies, food and drugs. So for any packaged food product, any restaurant, medical, or pharmaceutical product, the FDA approval and regulatory process is there to say, in order to sell people stuff they're going to ingest, you can't just do whatever you want. Because if left unchecked, corners will get cut and people will get hurt. Which is exactly why the FDA was created. Prior to the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, the closest thing in the US to the FDA was the good housekeeping seal of approval. As people learn more about the horrifying conditions in American meatpacking plants in cities like Chicago, hog butcher to the world, it was clear that something needed to be done to ensure the safety of consumers. Does the FDA create an impenetrable bottleneck to innovation? This week I've eaten tortillas made from egg whites, chicken nuggets made from black beans, and a chocolate scone from my favorite local bakery that gave me a nearly out-of-body experience. While world hunger is far from solved, we seem to be at least doing a decent job of finding new ways to feed and care for ourselves. 
The argument for some sort of oversight is that, just like the FDA, it would create necessary incentives to be more thorough, develop better ways of doing things, and instill confidence in the people that they are not being put in harm's way. I can go eat at a restaurant without being paranoid that there might be a rodent in my dinner because there is a separate legal body routinely ensuring conditions are maintained to prevent that from happening. Shouldn't everyone be able to use technology to apply for a job, communicate with friends, or watch a video with full confidence that they're not being inadvertently harmed or disadvantaged by algorithms working behind the scenes? Things could have gone differently in the 1960s, but they didn't, and here we are. So, what would regulating the use of algorithms look like? The idea that companies will govern themselves is hilarious. A world where Twitter can only push an update once they have Uncle Sam's green light sounds equally impossible. The stories of unchecked harm at the hands of big data algorithms are real and likely to only grow further out of control. So, what now? Joining us to help us answer those questions is Nabia Syed. She is the president of The Markup, a new investigative journalism startup that explores how powerful actors use technology to reshape society. Previously, she was vice president and associate general counsel at BuzzFeed, where she served as the company's first newsroom lawyer. She also holds a law degree from Yale Law School and Balliol College at Oxford University, was a First Amendment fellow for the New York Times, and was described by Forbes as one of the best emerging free speech lawyers. Thanks, Nabia, for joining us. And how are you doing today? I am wonderful. It's a rainy, rainy day in Brooklyn, but I'm excited to talk about all things tech with you. So thanks for having me. Well, great. Well, I'm glad you get to stay inside. So just help us out a little bit. Tell us a little bit about the markup, what its vision is, and how you feel it differs from other journalism outfits that are out there today. Yeah, absolutely. So the markup is exploring how powerful actors use technology to reshape society. And I think what's fascinating here is that we need to unearth the way that technology has become the invisible architecture mm. of so many things. And that includes the tech you know, Amazon, Google, Facebook, aka Meta, but also most interestingly for us, the tech you don't know about yet. When you go to get a mortgage, do you know that there are screening algorithms making choices about your eligibility? When you apply to get a to, a, to rent an apartment, there are tenant screening algorithms that are plagued and, and riddled with bias and discrimination. When you apply for college and you submit all your data on an application form, mm. that that data is often monetized and sold. And so it's really interrogating this architecture, making it visible to people, and then giving them the tools to explore it further. And that's a really big part of what we do at The Markup, is that we want to put the tools of our inquiry in your hands. And we do that in a couple of ways. The first is, uh, you know, we'll reveal the methodology of how we investigated something. We'll be like, here's the tool we built, here's the data we collected, here's how it works. We also will build tools like Amazon Brand Detector, right? Mm. You know that Amazon... Um, Lots of things are sold on Amazon, but some of them are actually Amazon-owned companies, even though they don't say Amazon. If you want to know where your socks are coming from, and you want to know whether this name is a small mom-and-pop company selling on Amazon or just Amazon by another name, we built you a browser plugin so you can see that. And that's to cool. me, that's a form of journalism, right? It's putting the tools of inquiry in your hands. And that's pretty important. And the reason we sort of wanted to take this decentralized approach to like see it for yourself and total transparency is we launched in 2020. 
Like what a wild time to start a news organization when no one trusts the media. People are rightfully skeptical of media institutions. And we're talking about tech companies, which also (laughs) prompts a lot of suspicion and distrust, right? So we have to very thoughtfully create the uh, trust points and trust building points. And for us, transparency and tools were the way to do it. You know, we often hear about companies like Facebook or Amazon or, you know, uh, Google have these algorithms that could be around, you know, mortgage selection, could be around resume selection. And a lot of times they're, they, they, we don't know what they are, right? Because they claim they're proprietary, they're, uh, you know, intellectual property or IP. So they're like, we can't tell you what our algorithm is because then we'll lose some market advantage. I mean, do you feel that's a, a fair excuse and a fair defense? I mean, what is the responsibility of these companies to expose their algorithms in such a way where they still have their advantage from having it, but yet are, are able, people are able to understand how they're being manipulated, maybe too strong a word in some cases, but maybe not, but how, how that algorithm works and how they may be negatively affected by it. Yeah, I think it's hard, but I think we can do hard things. And I think in the last hundred years, we've seen actually several other examples of this. So I always want to put it in the historical lens, right? In the 1930s, we were like, hmm, banks, they have a lot of power. It turns out they can tank an economy. And bankers would say, oh, this financial system, very complicated. You can't possibly understand it. And yet we created the SEC and the Fed and various forms of information disclosure to say, it's complicated and it's hard, but we can do hard things. You're going to have to give us some information. So there's a check and balance on your power, right? That's 1930s. Yep. Fast forward to the 1960s. The rise of the administrative state, right? Non-elected officials who are making choices about governance, government, and systems in agencies, right? Which had not been the case for the previous decades. They're now making choices about housing, about all kinds of core critical functions in a way that the public can't see into. The government said, well... It's very complicated. It's very hard. You can't see into our processes. This is challenging. And the rise of the Freedom of Information Act, right? That legislation Mm -hmm. that said, no, actually, you get to write a request to an agency and say, give me that record. Give me that data. I deserve to know it is a form of check and balance on that kind of power. And now let's find ourselves in, you know, the 2020s. We are due for the recognition that, and the recognition is happening. Big tech companies not just big tech companies, tech companies hold a lot of power over core critical functions enough to change our democracy, affect what we think about public health and a variety of other harms. And the question is, what is the right check and balance? What? And I think that's where the transparency questions come in. And so maybe it, the way to do this is actually to look at banking as an example. Should there be a federal agency who has a job of doing algorithmic audits? Right. Um, Should there be other voluntary disclosures that maybe they don't have to go to the public broadly? I take the trade secrets argument from private companies, right? That are like, we don't want to give you the secret sauce of Google search because then we won't be competitive anymore. Okay. Then give it to a federal agency that might have the ability to do oversight. And there's a lot of complications that come with that of like, you know, how can you have the right talent in the government to actually have meaningful oversight? But structurally, I think that's the moment we're in, which is who's going to be the check? Journalism is a piece of it. I'm thrilled about what we do at the markup, but it's not it's not all of it. No, that's great. 
I like the way you said it. It's like we, the public, don't necessarily have to know the details of what's going on inside the magic box, but somebody should, right? Someone should potentially regulate that behavior, and that way you can have sort of that NDA aspect of it to say, like, we say we're going to do these things. Are we doing these things and nothing else, right? Mm-hmm. And the other thought was, and I think this was in the New York Times, where it was, we've kind of inadvertently given up a right, you know, without our consent. I think like in the EU, it's definitely in in parts of the US, like I know California is doing this as well at a lesser extent, but I think it's just more broadly of do we have a right to privacy in this marketplace, right? In this, in this environment, right? It was a new environment. We kind of walked in and no one really thought about anything, but now, you know, that, that, that right to privacy should be something that is not, we have to ask for, but it's something that someone cannot take away from us. Right. I think it's, that was the interesting argument to me is kind of flipping it on its head. Just like I expect to not have the police come inside of my house without due cause. I should expect not to be behaviorally tracked and monitored and monetized. I shouldn't have to say, well, don't do that. You should not do that. And you should ask me, Hey, I'm going to look at what you do and I'm going to make money off of it. Is that okay with you? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think I love that sort of inversion of rather than saying, oh, well, privacy's out the door. We right. already, we, we already like let that one out of the bag. Just pause and say, did we? Because I don't think that's a conclusion <laughs> yeah. that we can make. I don't think that we all- I missed all that meeting. Was there, was that, when was that? The 14th? I was busy on the 14th. Right. I must have missed that. Notes? But uh, <laughs> yeah, I'd like to see the minutes. Like, yeah, it's like, I don't think that happened. I think that's what was so fascinating for me about just about a year ago, about January 6th, right? Uh, yeah. Where there were enough people who were like, wait, what? What is happening on in our news feeds? What is going on? How are people in these- uh, information mini ecosystems where that seems like a legitimate set of choices. Storming the yeah. Capitol seems like it's legitimate. And so I think there's these moments, these flashpoints that happen where people are like, I'm sorry, I do not, this balance is not working for me. We're going to need to do something different. And I think that is the tremendous opportunity of the moment that we're in. And the window won't be forever, but it's yeah. going to go on for the next couple of years of we get to renegotiate that balance. And when I say we, I mean us as consumers, us as people mm-hmm. who choose what we're going to use, and also the regulators. And I think it's really important to define that clearly uh, and, and to add a third, which is actually companies. So as users, we mm-hmm. get to make choices about what we use and what we do. And that's where it's sort of like the FDA kind of labeling or nutrition yeah. facts labeling is interesting. But that's not the whole picture, right? Because the nutrition label doesn't tell you that like, well, if you eat this ice cream every single day, that's very different than eating this ice cream once, right? Yes. It doesn't give yeah, you yeah. full context. It's important for regulators to know that the public cares and that they want they want a different balance because that's what gives them political license to do hard things like going up against companies that have more resources than kingdoms and empires <laughs> did in the past. Yes. But then yes. there's also companies, right, who are reading the room saying, are we going to be regulated out of existence in Europe and in California? Why don't we get ahead of the curve? Why don't we see where people are and try to serve them something that's privacy friendly, values forward, ethical and better? Because we don't want those ESG shareholder lawsuits to come in five years time, right? And like understanding that it's a dance between all three of these players is the moment we're in. And that is what is so fascinating. And you got to figure out like, what are the lever, what's the pool you're in? What's the levers of power that you have? Yeah, I think it's a great shout out to sort of the ESG movement and the activists, uh, you know, stockholders to really start driving change on these publicly held companies by, you know, Mm -hmm. taking positions on there and sort of forcing them to confront this behavior using the tools of the marketplace. Mm -hmm. 
Very good. I know we talked about one thing already, but as what is that what you're working on currently? Is there something else going on at the markup right now you want us to tell us about? Well, there's lots of fun journalism in store, really great investigations and stories. Um, and one thing I really love about our journalism is that we pick a story and we won't just do a flash in the pan and forget about it. We try to follow the story along. And that's one reason we build tools. So um, one trend of ours I'm really um, interested in and I think would be fascinating to anyone trying to learn more about this space is how many apps um, and tools available for businesses are tracking um Things like applications for colleges, right? Hmm. Life 360, an app that many parents, many families have on their phone to see where their family members are, turning around and selling precise location data, right? That's a wow. story we we revealed that in December. A couple of weeks later, we have the company saying, okay, we're not going to do that anymore. <laughs> and we're really digging into sort of the consumer side. These, again, things that are like affecting your life, but you don't know about yet, right? They're, these are really things that you use every day and you're going to need to know about it. The piece that I do, I uh, can talk to you about because, you know, the journalism stays uh, under the cloak of darkness until it's out is really, you know, thinking about that landscape of what's useful for consumers, what's useful for businesses, what's useful for regulators and how, you know, how you pull those levers. Yeah. One interesting uh, unintended um, learning of the last year was as part of our trust forward approach, um, because we launched in 2020, what a wild time. Um, we started building these tools, these alternatives to what were, was publicly available uh, in order to preserve our privacy promise, right? We tell people who come to our website, we're trying to explain to you the hidden surveillance that happens on the internet, and mm -hmm. that means we're not part of it, right? That right. means we're not selling your data, we're not collecting more than what we need, and we're going to tell you what we're doing. So that meant things like if we wanted to have an RSVP system for a digital event, we're right. not going to use Eventbrite. Right. If we want to embed a tweet, we have to build something different. If we want to use a link shortener or something mm. like that, we're not yeah. going to be using Bitly. We're going to do something else. And so we started building these internal tools. And we um, realized that these might be useful for other businesses, other organizations. So we're mm. going to start releasing the code for that publicly. Nice. Um, yeah, just as like part of this is our theory of change. You're going to read about what's going on. And then if you want to do something differently, you can use our tools. And if you're at a company, if you're at a business, if you're at an organization, here's our code, take our way and that's and, and do something better, make a different choice. And we don't have to just sit around and wait for regulators to make change. Although I think structural change obviously does happen at the regulatory level. It's not just about an individual change. This stuff is, it's, it's legitimately hard. It's tricky and we all play a part, right? Like it's just not a moment where we can be like, I don't know, Nancy Pelosi figure it out. Like, no, like that's, that's just, that's not, that's not what's happening. We talked about this a little bit and just want to make sure that we get, you know, sort of a, a, your thorough thoughts on it was this idea of there's a in the EU, there's a proposed artificial intelligence act. How could we regulate AI in an ethical and legal manner? Is it a good idea? And what do you feel are some of the challenges to moving forward? Yeah, I, I think this act is a landmark act, but it's also important to recognize that like with many U EU initiatives, this is just the early days. It iterates a lot. We saw that with the general data protection regulation, yeah. that things evolve a lot. But I, I think this is a fascinating approach. I think there's a philosophical approach here that um, lots of folks aren't catching on to that I, I wanted to just um, bring out, which is they're taking... Um, 
what I would consider sort of a product safety kind of approach mm-hmm. and, and to like make it less legal and uh, less legal and boring for people. Let's think about elevators, right? How do we regulate something like elevators? Well, there's general elevator industry safety standards, right? You have to certify like, yep, I'm to the norms of uh, other elevators. You put that certificate in the elevator. If the elevator breaks down, you got to go fix it every once in a while. You have to recertify. But like there aren't a lot of barriers to getting your elevator out the door. You, you just got to go through some steps that the industry has said. You check right. every once in a while. You iterate a little bit if you need to. And that's product safety, right? Standards define, voluntary standards define what's going on, and you check. But think about another model, which is like pharmaceutical companies, right? Pharmaceutical companies don't say, well, we put a drug out there, but, but we'll self-certify that it was fine. We'll check it in two years, right? There's actually a lot more aggressive testing and disclosure that happens, right? These mandatory tests that happen up front uh, and all these steps and trials and things that you have to do even before it sees the light of day. And then, yes, of course, we realize things about how particular drugs operate in the market. Things get pulled. Things get taken down. But the difference is there's a lot more upfront work, a lot more upfront work. Which is the right model for algorithms, right? Given that they're so hard to assess, should we be testing more in advance? And so for the EU AI Act, there's actually almost 200 civil society organizations like signed a letter saying, here's some other ideas of how you could be Mm. um, assessing this. And they suggest something called a fundamental rights impact assessment, meaning before this sees the light of day, before it gets out there, you need to be testing it. You need to be testing it, and here's what that test looks like. So that starts to sound a lot more like the sort of pharmaceutical model versus the product safety model, which is what we see in the AI Act. The AI Act is very much like, okay, here are four categories of risk, right? And their four categories are unacceptable risk, like you can't do this, Mm. high risk, systems that pose a risk of manipulation, and then all other AI systems. And so the law starts by saying here are the four categories, they don't do a great job of delineating what falls <laughs> into which category. But yeah. again, it's early days. And I would hope to see more categories fleshing out like what goes in what bucket, because that's the only way you can future proof a law like this. Otherwise, it becomes outdated pretty fast. Um, but, you know, changing this approach from being uh, product safety, like, OK, once you're in this bucket, these are the things you have to do see you later, like, and hope it doesn't break. And doing more of the upfront work, I think is going to be really important and a shift that a lot of people are calling for. Um, And I would encourage people to sort of think about it on that philosophical level. What needs to happen before an AI tool sees the light of day? And that's the big question for us. Yeah, no, I think it's a great way to to phrase it up. I guess one of the other concerns that I, I would have is that, and you alluded to this a little earlier, is you know, sort of the regulatory capture aspect of some of these more complex things in the FDA. It's like the people who know enough to comment on it and do it are people who are from these industries, basically, right? And it's just to be a similar thing, I would think, potentially that could be a problem. I mean, how, do you see that as a problem? And what do you see as ways around that problem? It's absolutely a problem. It's a huge problem. And it's a problem with regulating anything that requires inside expertise. And I would say that is the case for, you know, banking, like because algorithms are a huge issue in banking too, right? Right. It's It's an issue with pretty much anything. And so the question really at that high level is how, if we're talking about checks and balances, which we want in any system, how do you make sure that private, the private sector doesn't totally outgun the government? 
How do you say, actually, there are checks and balances here? One approach is um, if the fines in this type of system um, generate enough money for the government, right? Because you you fine a company and then you, you get money from it. If that allows us to pay people enough who are experts to create a pipeline of expertise into the federal government, right? So again, playing into the regular, like there's always going to be, well, I shouldn't say always, the current state of play (laughs) incentivizes people to be in a revolving door. We see this in the financial system all the time. People are here, then they're there, then they're here, then they're there. But one reason they hopscotch around is because you make a nickel and a smile in the government and you make, you know, you can pay your mortgage when you're in the private sector. If we started to shift the economic incentive a little bit, to make room for values more, right? So if there's less of a delta between the pay, would we still see it shake out the same way? Would people go through that revolving door as frequently? I don't know. And I think that's, to, to me, changing the economic incentives is at least one experiment that we could have. Yeah. I think we all learned in 2020 that you cannot predict the future. We don't know. <laughs> no. We don't yeah. know anything about anything. And that should, uh, aside from the initial terror, uh, right, that should actually be liberating, right? We are in a moment of renegotiating the balances of power in a variety of different realms. We have no choice mm-hmm. but to iterate and to experiment. There is no choice. There are no clear right answers. There are many, many wrong answers. We're not yes. going to know until we try them. And, you know, that's not to say willy-nilly try anything. Right, right. But I think there is a, there needs to be, um, I think there's like a moment for imagination, right? There's regulatory imagination as well as innovative imagination within companies to say, yeah, there's a lot of things that we said were just the way it was done. And that need not be the case. And so I think there's a lot of potential in that, right? I want to be optimistic about what the opportunities are in this chaos because there are always opportunities in chaos. Yeah, I, I love that. And and uh, in, in the software business, of course, we're big fans of design thinking and that mm-hmm. idea of sort of having a hypothesis saying like, here are the things we want to stop or start. And we're going to try an experiment to say like, what would it be like if we made people do X, Y, or Z before they did it? And then you measure and you examine like what were the outcomes and it's not fixed in stone but it's a constant mm-hmm. on because because it's going to be like you said unanticipated reactions we can't correctly predict the future but we doesn't stop us from trying to make steps to influence it absolutely and I, I actually think like there's something very radical about that idea right there's people who are um they're like, ah, privacy's over, never happened. Like <laughs> yeah. the apocalypse is coming, yeah. the end, right? There's a lot of fatalism. Then um, then there's the like, well, you know, this innovation has given us so many great things. It's so wonderful, like blah, blah, like screw the haters. It doesn't matter. And it's yeah. like actually sparking that curiosity to say like, is this really working for any of us? Let's play together and figure it out is, is actually quite a radical thing to be doing in this moment. And that's like, whenever people are like, what do I do? And I'm like, get radically open to the idea that you do not know the answers mm-hmm. and show up to this with that in mind because a lot more yeah. is going to be possible with that with that framing yeah no i love that that's great um you started to talk a little bit earlier about the markup method and i was i, I don't know if you did you make it through all the pieces that you wanted to talk about i think we got we started talking about tools and transparency and data sets and sharing it did you get all through the a full description of that Yeah, I mean, there's one other piece about the market method I'll say that's really, again, going back to that fundamental trust problem. How do you, as a news organization, gain the trust of your readers? It's going to be transparency. And since you mentioned the scientific method and design thinking, the market method is very much uh, built on that, right? So the first thing we do is we 
have a hypothesis, right? We try, we know what we're going to test. We then build a data set to understand and test that hypothesis. And that can mean anything from someone, you know, leaks you a data set to we go out and we build it. We scrape a lot of data to do that and to doing that, you know, in an ethical way, in a way that we feel confident in. Um, and then we build our data set, then we try to bulletproof it, right? We'll take it to experts to say, hey, this is the methodology of how we assessed this tenant screening algorithm data. What do you think, mm-hmm. right? Do you do you think this makes sense? And we'll get feedback of like, I don't know if I would do it that way. Maybe I wouldn't do this way. Um, and then when we publish, we show our work because we publish these very long methodologies alongside our investigations. So other experts can dig in and say, well, is this how I would... Does this make sense to me? Is is this how I would do it? And even if you're not technically sophisticated enough to engage with the methodology on that level, right? We're not all statisticians. I'm certainly not. I'm not. No. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But it's enough. It's enough to be like, well, okay. At least it's out there. At least someone Mm. can kick the tires on this, and people do, right? And so that that sort of spirit of the market method of being transparent, of walking the talk not just talking, right? Really doing the work means that, you know, we're not publishing 10 times a day, we're publishing twice a week. And we're really thoughtful about what we put mm. out there and really intentional. Um, and that's quite different than what you see in a lot of advertising driv- revenue driven media. We're just taking a really different approach that building that kind of trust, being that methodical gets us results. We publish a story, we hear from a senator. We publish a story, we a company changes their practices. Wow. If we're willing to do it, we're going we're gonna to make sure that we get something out of it. And that is something that's, I think, like quite core to who we are. My other thought was one of the reasons that people don't trust or say they distrust other news outfits is sort of whether it's intentional or unconscious bias in terms of even selecting so even like what mm-hmm. got into the funnel of like what things you choose to look at how do you guys feel at the markup that you're you're being honest with yourselves about like oh this is you know are we open to looking at things that we might not normally look at or, or is it sort of a group think potentially coming into play Oh, it's it's such a great question. And I think it's a great question for any organization, no matter what stage you're in, which is like, have I defined reality correctly? (laughs) And one one sort of like escape hatch we have is that we do do a lot of audience intake. So we Mm. have sort of an ask the markup series where people will ask us things and we're like, oh, yeah, that's that's a good thing to dig into. Let's go. Let's go there. Right. And it's also a way to make sure that you're not leaving your audience behind. And that leads to these sort of very interesting moments where, um, you know, we published a guide of how to protect your phone at a protest. Uh, Mm. The Saturday of the first big protests in the George Floyd protest movement, right? Right. That was someone asked and we answered. Um, There's a lot of like, so what's the deal with Venmo? Like, why can everyone see my like transactions? Uh, We're going to answer what's going on. And so that to us is one helpful feedback loop. The other thing is realizing sort of you know, where are the spaces in which there's conventional wisdom that we want to test more rigorously? So people talk a lot about like, oh, there's filter bubbles on Facebook and, right. you know, people on this side don't see what's going on that side yeah. and no one knows anything. And then we built a tool called Citizen Browser where we said, okay, um, we hear that narrative. Is it true? Like, let's build a statistically representative sample of the United States. Let's get them to give us access to their Facebook feeds 
And then let's see what are Trump voters seeing? What are Biden voters seeing? What are women, women seeing? What are men seeing? What are black people seeing? What are white people seeing? And let's actually detect what's going on. And that's another feedback loop, right? Which is like hmm. uh, poking at conventional wisdom yeah. to try to measure yeah. what's really going on. And in this case, we did see there's like a, you could, anyone can go, if you search the markup and split screen, you'll be able to see oh, sort cool. of a dashboard that shows you what's going on in our panel. And that um, the Citizen Browser Project actually went so well in the US that um, we deployed it in Germany before the German elections. Okay. So they could see what was going on with misinformation on Facebook in advance of the German election. So uh, that's how we try to keep tethered to reality, right? Not to descend yeah. into groupthink, which is let's hear from our audience and let's also see what people are assuming and see if we can prove that out. It is interesting when you do look at the data because that uh, was another study I saw, a very similar idea of let's look at, you know, we hear about the, the bubbles and it wasn't really a bubble. It was that, hearing the other voices actually hardened people's positions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the analogy that I loved, it was like that you're at a sports stadium watching a game. Like you can clearly hear the opposing team cheering out their standpoint, which is Yankees suck. And, but then, you know, it doesn't make you think, oh, maybe Yankees do suck. But it just hardens your position about, no, Red Sox suck. And so that, that was the best analogy that I heard. It wasn't necessarily that these sides aren't hearing each other, but they're seeing it more as a competition to be won and not a discussion to be engaged in or a problem to be solved where we have to sort of think about how can I influence this person? It's no, I want to show them that they're wrong and that I'm right. You know what? I I think that hits the nail on the head of like sort of the most, not to get too galaxy brain about this stuff, but the most existential question that we really have to answer. That's uh, to me as a person who is a free speech lawyer, a First Amendment lawyer, running a media company is like the big question that I ask about, which is how do you persuade? Right? How do you persuade? There is this sort of very thin belief of like, oh, if you just expose yourself to all these different sides, then the truth will just emerge from it. And that's, you know, in in the team's example, they're like two opposing sides cheering. We see how that that's not a full thick discussion. (laughs) Uh, Right? You're like, it's not just hearing it. You got to really hear it. You got to listen to it. In order to persuade someone, they can't feel like their identity is being annihilated in agreeing with you, right? That like they're like crossing the Rubicon coming to your side. You have to get into the space of saying, you know what? Um, This is what I think with the information I have now. And that's what you think with the information you have now. But what do we do in the face of new information? Like maybe it's okay to say that we don't know because that saying you don't know and you're open is going to be the first step to maybe changing your mind. And that's a thing that like, it's one reason in our methodologies will openly say, we didn't know how to do this piece. We didn't answer that Mm. question. We don't know. Okay. In our articles, one of the things I love that our journalists will do all the time is they'll very very openly say, we don't know how to measure that. We couldn't get Mm. data on this. We don't know. Because we think saying to someone, I don't have all the answers, but on this piece that I dug into, I have the answer here, is again, a really good trust building mechanism and starts to break down at the sort of ossified, oppositional, tribal approach to information that we see across the political spectrum, across news, across sporting events and other things. And that's why I keep coming back to like, it is radical to say we don't have the answers right now. We can know, that doesn't mean there's no expertise. Correct. We don't have all the answers. We have these ones. Let's talk about it is kind of the positioning that we have. 
And what we're seeing is, you know, given the number of times we're being cited in the congressional record, in investigations, by wow. senators, by in in um, sort of movement protests in all kinds of at all levels of society, I feel like that's working. Like that's resonating. It's landing yeah. with people to say, we know what we know. We don't know all of it. That's on you to get to the solution. But we know some of it and we stand by what we know. One of the most fascinating things about Amazon Brand Detector is that um, the first place to republish the news of uh, Amazon Brand Detector, actually first it was The Verge and then it was Breitbart. And the and then it sort of cascaded through the right ecosystem as a result. Yeah. And the framing was, this is screwing small business owners. If you sell on Amazon, this is right. screwing you. Right. And that, which of course is like very different than the sort of antitrust oriented, like self-dealing logic that you're seeing on the left. And it was just this moment of like, we have such an opportunity. Like we, we have different words for the harms. Right. And if we could just talk to each other about like, okay, so this isn't working for you and it's not working for me. It's not working for anybody. Let's do something. Let's do something. And I think honestly for the com- I have so many friends who work in in these companies and they're like, yeah, this this isn't necessarily serving everyone. We know the limitations. It's just about getting to a moment of enough transparency and honesty to say like this isn't really working. Like we we got to rethink this. Awesome. Well, just to just to just to lead out on it, um, anybody who wants to learn more about how their data is being used or show support for organizations like yours, the markup, you know, where would they go? How, how would they how would they start that journey? HTTPS. The S is important. Uh, colon slash slash themarkup.org. You can follow us online on Twitter um, at the markup, and um, please do sign up for our newsletter. We can get you our uh, twice weekly new articles right into your inbox at your own convenience. That's awesome, and, and that's where they would also go to find out about some of the tools and browser extensions yep. that you mentioned because those sound great. Yep, absolutely. Thank you so much. Huge thank you again to Nabia Syed. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. As is often the case with topics like what we tackled in this episode, there's a ton of stuff we wanted to include but ran out of time for, both about Symbolmatics and other exceptional organizations working to raise awareness and create better systems for accountability in big tech. So in addition to checking out the markup, if you're interested in learning more about what we talked about, please check out and support organizations like the Algorithmic Justice League, the Citizens and Technology Lab at Cornell University, New Public, the AI Now Institute, Foundation for Responsible Robotics, the AI Ethics Lab, and so many more. We'll include links to all the above on our website. We'll also include links to Coded Bias, a must-watch documentary now available on Netflix about the research of Joy Bolomini and other pioneering women into the threats of AI. This episode was produced and written by Max Parcell. Editing by Max Parcell and Chris Mitchell. Sound engineering by Chris Mitchell. Original music by Ethan Parcell and Lucas Parcell. Occasional quippery and Sweet Valley High references can all be blamed on me, Scott Herms. If you have feedback for us about this episode or the show in general, let us know. You can get in touch on our website or find us on Instagram or Twitter. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. Visit lookbothways.kinandcarta.com to listen to all available episodes or to leave feedback. We love to hear what you think of the show or any ideas you might have for future episodes. Better yet, create an AI algorithm that will predict our future episodes and have it tell us what we're going to do next. 
Until next time.